Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. It's one minute past nine. You're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. Good morning. My name's Bron Burton. My name's Dr Beach. How are you, Dr Beach? I'm very well, Bron Burton. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's lovely to see your beautiful face in the studio. and likewise. In 2023 for the first time. Yeah. So welcome to the desk. Thank you. Great show last week. Uh, Yeah, it was fun. I enjoyed it immensely. With Anth? Yeah. Um... Excellent. Hey, thank you very much before we get into our show to Tim Thorpe for Vital Bits and to Andrew for Soulful Bits. Bonnie Ray, did you hear that this morning on your way in? I did not. I did. It was good. Worth listening back on demand. Bonnie Raitt, who apparently was an unknown singer. Did you hear about that? No. So this is with the Grammys that um, a couple of news um, avenues reported the shock that the uh, Grammy was given to an unknown singer and beat Beyonce and Taylor Swift and, and was on uh, right. What, just recently in the Grammy? Yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. Anyway. I did enjoy the David Crosby song, so thanks, Tim. Great show. Yeah. You can catch Tim next week, as always. Six o'clock, bright and shiny. On a Saturday morning and then again on a Sunday morning. Three hours each of those weekend mornings. Indeed. Weekend in, weekend out. Yep. Love you, Tim. Thanks to Steph too for things to do today. And uh, I also wanted to thank, I know you guys did it last week, but big thanks to uh, to Dono, M and the crew for a sporting discussion over summer. Yeah, that was some, it was fun listening, wasn't it? I enjoyed it. <laughs> As I was recovering, you you were very, um, very discreet and polite last week, but I'm just going to say I had a hip replacement over summer. Ah, uh, yeah. As it did. turns out on the same day as Jimmy Barnes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Must have been something about that day. Was he um, in the same ward? No, I think he was in a different state actually. But, um, yeah, that was quite a shock waking the, up how's afterwards. The, how's the recovery going? Good. Good. Yeah, really good. You're looking pretty fit. Good to be back on track. Might even line up for the megahertz this year. <laughs> <laughs> Go for on. I think my mum's probably swooned into a dead faint at that thought. <laughs> All right, let's get into the program. Um, shortly, uh, we're going to be speaking with Rex Hunter. It's his first show as well for 2023. Rex, if you haven't caught our show before, is our in-house maritime archaeology expert. So he brings us a segment every month or so um, talking about everything, to, well, anything really to do with um, what's under the water and has been there for a really long time that is maritime in nature. And, and how lucky are we to have our own in-house maritime archaeologist? It's, it's just that, yeah, words words can't describe it. Yeah, I'm I'm very happy. Yeah, and then we got um we got a dive report. Yes, this is super exciting, and I know you guys mentioned this last week. Very exciting. We've got um we've actually got three new dive reporters, so they're going to kind of tag team each week as they get in and out of the water and give us a, a lowdown on what's happening in diving world. Um, keeping it fairly local at this point, but I know there are they've got plans to maybe talk beyond local waters. Yeah. But um, yeah, give us give us uh, an update on what the diving conditions are like, what what they've been up to, um, bit of a forecast for the day, for what's happening today, what might be coming up next week for those of you who are lucky enough to go and be able to dive midweek. Give us some tips where to go. Yeah. Good things to see. 
So our three dive reporters are um, Cara Hull, who will be on the show today. Mm-hmm. Very excited to talk to Cara. And Mara Kelly and Jane Bowman, who many of our listeners will know. I haven't actually made contact with Jane, but I, I've heard that she's happy to be one of our dive <laughs> well, let's reporters. Go, let's, let's hope that's true. <laughs> but uh, anyway. She's probably listening. I think, what? What? <laughs> First I've heard of it. Anyway, Cara will be with us today. We're very excited to talk to Cara. Um, then speaking, we're going to stay in that excited mode while we talk to Ben Francis Shelley, who is our also our in-house coastal paleontologist. Hey, sure, we've got a lot of, sort of like in-house people. Uh, and, and Ben's been, um, many listeners will, will remember Ben from last year who had a regular segment. And Ben's, yeah, Ben's wonderful from, um, from the museum. And um, he'll be on as our second guest. He's going to be talking about a new find. Um, it's, a, a, it's a five million year fossil that he found from the Bayside area um, that is of a 500 kilogram. All I've got here is, oh yeah, giant marsupial. 500 kilogram giant marsupial found, okay. found in the waters off the Bayside area. So, How old is it? Uh, five million years old. Five million, right. Mm, okay. You know, only five million. And then to wrap up, we've got, um, we got Cabin Boy who's um, beaming into us by telephone from the Wooden Boat Festival down in, um, in Tassie. And he sailed down there to get there. I know. How adventurous. How authentic. I wonder how many wooden boat people kind of just fly down and <laughs> just rock up. We can ask him that. Let's yeah. ask him that. So he's our authentic in-house boaty. Yeah. <laughs> he's our yachty. He's our yachty. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. All right. Uh, I think we've got a couple of minutes for some science. Yeah, there's a, there's a big paper. Um, we just talked before. We've got Ben Francicelli coming on soon um, to talk about things from the past 10 million years ago. We mentioned um, He's going to mention about talk about a um, an ancient marsupial, but 250 million years ago was the great dying. We had many mass ex- well, about five big mass extinction events since the origin of life on Earth, um, and this one at the Permian Triassic boundary, 250 million years ago. So after that is when the dinosaurs started. Then we had another big mass extinction event around 69, 70 million years ago, where the dinosaurs went. Uh, but this mass extinction event. Uh, led to 80% of the diversity on Earth going whack. And it was, um, we thought, we think that this came about through volcanic events and then um, climate change happening after that global warming. Um, it was thought that after this huge mass, mass extinction event, it took a long time for the biota to come back. Um, less than 1 million years after that event, a, fossil, um, a lot of fossils have been found in China in this mud bed. Um, Great diversity of fossils, um, and this is a paper which has been published in Science uh, this week uh, from a Chinese group, showing that there was an, an amazing diversity of animals within one million years after that. So this is really fascinating from the point of view that it's telling us that life came back in the oceans with um, amazing speed, rapidity, stuff that we would not have predicted um, after this great dying, as it's called, 250 million years ago. So for those of you who you know, into sort of eras and eons and all of that, it's, um, this is the, the Permian-Triassic extinction event. Wow. 250 million years ago. And things bounce back really quickly. It's interesting um, that this paper has come from China. I reckon in the 20-plus whatever years we've been doing this show, to have um, 
paleontology done in China. I don't recall that ever happening. Oh, it, it actually is quite a lot. I'm sure there is. We, yeah, I yeah. just have not heard of it before. Yeah. But, um, yeah, fascinating stuff. Yeah, a lot, a lot of um, really well-preserved fossil beds um, in what is now China. Yeah. And, in fact, it was interesting looking um, at an article in Nature talking about this science paper. It was Guang Shi, who used to be at Deakin University, is now at the University of Wollongong. Um, who is a Chinese-born paleontologist working in Australia, and he's done a lot of amazing work in China as well. So yeah, it was good to see him quoted in um, in Nature this week. Let's do more of that. Yeah. I want to find out more. Well, um, let's have a chat to Ben about it. I'm sure he's all over this yes. as well, much more than I. I reckon he is. Yep. Thanks, Dr Beach. Triple R. And uh, just before we welcome Rex into the studio, I just wanted to read this for you because we're loving a goldfish bowl. A cl- classic tune, by the way, Bron. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I feel like cracking a martini or something. <laughs> <laughs> we, we all got a bit of swagger on when we were listening to that. Um, the reception for this movie when it came out, the New York Times called the film vapid and transparent, but at least it made no pretenses. <laughs> Producer Martin Duro later said the film didn't come off very well. I reckon we might get Jeff to look into this one. Uh, yeah, it could be could be worth. Was it a Doris Day? Uh, no. Well, uh, it was George Sands. I don't know who played the female lead. Oh, here we go. Tom, no, Tommy Sands. Oh, Tommy Sands. Sorry, yeah, yeah, not George Sands. No, not George Sands. <laughs> no, definitely not. I'll let, let's. Oh, Fabian was in it too. But let's. Um, yeah, I'm not sure about the female lead. We'll look into that one. All right, Rex Hunter. Good morning. Good Welcome. morning, Bron. I've just. Squeeze my head through the door there after talking about me before, puppy up my tyres. <laughs> you're the, you're the sure. best, you're the best. <laughs> yeah, you're the best. Oh, stop it, guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's launch straight in. So we kind of called your segment Rex Hunting some time ago. I think we've kind of <laughs> moved past that, but we still kind of revert back to it from time to time. But um, today you're going to bring us in some information about the Yarra as it was prior to all the major alterations that happened in the 1800s? 1800s, yeah. I'll I'll bring up to sort of John Cood, Sir John Cood, with his uh, additions to the Yarra River. So it's, well, maritime, it's all part of maritime history. There's a lot of maritime history involved with the Yarra River. So um, I thought I'd go right back to the start. So it was originally called Birrarung, so uh, by the First Nations people. Um, so they've had an association for at least 30,000 years with the Yarra River, which is, um, it's just, yeah, Sydney Harbour has, oh, Sydney has Sydney, Sydney Harbour. Melbourne has the Yarra River, which they call the river that floats upside down or flows upside down mm. with the brown murk and all sorts of stuff. So it, it begins in the foot of Bay at Mount Borbor, so it's got about 240 kilometres of um, winding till it gets to the, the Newport where it exits into Hobson's Bay. So um so, so the yeah the First Nations sort of understood the river and uh, it was just basically it was just basically a winding stream. So um did the did the Wurundjeri call it the Yarra? Uh no, this is ah oh, I'm glad you brought that up because I had that in my notes. No, it was John Helder Wedge. So John Helder Wedge was the surveyor with Batman John Batman's Party and they they knew of the Yarra Yarra River, and um, with uh, one of the First Nations people there, and he said Yarra Yarra, which meant well, there's two interpretations. It either either meant flowing, or little falls, which um, the the Yarra had. So around Queen Street, there was a the um, fall, what they call the falls, and this was a rock wall which ran from one side of the river to the other, and that appar- actually separated fresh water from salt water. Oh, right. 
So the reason Melbourne was built where it was, well, primary reason was, was there was fr- access to fresh water. So we had Williamstown, which was a good um, right near deep water, but had no no natural fresh water. You had to dig dig down a well, dig dig a well or whatever. So virtually impossible to set a, a, prop, a good settlement there at the time. And Melbourne had fresh water and said we had the falls that separated one from the other. So and that went to a, the, a, ba- a deep water basin, which is about five or six metres deep. At, at, at Queen Street, there, there is, I've heard that there is still evidence of the rocks across there, the falls on the side. Uh, Do you know if that's true or not? I, I've, I've not been down to have a look at it, and some listeners might want to text in about that. But There would have to be archaeological evidence for but, sure. But actual rocks still there on the side that you can see. On the surface, you mean? Ooh, yeah. There's been a lot of... A lot of stuff happening since lot, then, I suppose, yeah. yeah. Because that, well, it, the river's been reshaped, uh, widened, straightened, you know, re, redirected. Yeah, and you mentioned Coode before, John Coode. So Coode Island was that when I mean, that's a manufactured island. Yeah, isn't well, it, isn't first, the Arrow River would um, say come out from Newport, we head up the head up the Arrow River, and if we keep going towards Footscray around Footscray Road, it used to veer off around there and virtually follow that around to. Um, Victoria Dock, which is now Victoria Harbour. So the, there was a great big long, it was called Humbug Reach. In places it was only, you know, 18 metres wide. So two two reasonably sized ships were virtually unable to pass. It's amazing to think, just coming back to what you were saying, that from, from sort of Queen Street upstream until that point in time was fresh water because the Yarra is now, uh, or Berrung, is now estuarine all the way up to Dites Falls, I think, isn't it? It would have to be, yeah, to the next next sort of falls. Yeah, extraordinary what sort of alteration happened at that. So we're we're talking, and back to your original question, Dr Beach, about the naming, a misinterpretation is what has led it to be known as the Yarra River. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas the Wurundjeri called it Burrung. Burrung. Burrung, yeah. Because, well, Batman Fair uh, held a, realised his mistake because they went on further to the Werribee River and the um, First Nations person said, well, that's Yarra, Yarra again. So right. then he thought, oh, put two and two together. That's not the name of the river. <laughs> Fascinating. So um, and the problem with the Yarra, well, the pro- not the problem, I suppose there is a problem. To get deep, big vessels up was impossible because there was a number of sandbars and rock rock bars all the way up the Yarra River. So um, vessels... Uh, up to 200, 200 tonnes only could get up the river. Anything larger was just too deep draft. At, there was a, at, at high tide, you could get like 2.5 metres over the bar at the mouth of the, the era. That still seems quite big. 200 tonnes seems pretty big, but I suppose we're talking in comparative terms. 200, well, 200 tonnes, that, that would be a vessel, you know, it would be less than 30 metres. Yeah, okay. So it would be, you know... 25 metres maybe maximum. Yep, and these boats were kind of the equivalent of our semi-trailers back then. Yeah, exactly. They were just big, basically built like a duck. They weren't built for speed. They were just built to carry a cargo, big wide. If anybody's seen the Enterprise, the rebuilt Enterprise that sails up and down Port Phillip, that's basically what, just a big big floating bathtub. Yeah, you know, right. Not designed for speed. So what happened? How what how, What was the approach to... Alter it. I'm going to keep saying alter it because 
I can just imagine you know, the, the enormous amount of works that needed to happen at that time and you know, we can call it damage, we can call it a bunch of different things, but, but what actually needed to happen to, to change it from what it was then to what it is now? Well, eventually there was the Melbourne Harbour Trust was established in 1877 and there they used to raise fees for the, these renovations through wharfage and things like that. And so that would fund all the, uh, all the works. So Melbourne, I think Melbourne was the... One, like the eighth biggest river city in the world, yeah, river city in the world at one stage or something like that. So it's a significant, um, significant piece of infrastructure, and to get decent sized vessels, you know, up to back then six thousand tons, let's say, back in the eighteen hundreds, they had to first of all they employed jo- Sir John Curd, which we, he was an Englishman, to come out to Australia and suggest cutting a canal from um, from the Yarra across you know, through Port Melbourne Fisherman's Bend to take that big loop humbug reach out so vessels could um, could navigate the river and then by that stage get up to Melbourne because all your costs, a lot of your costs, you know, if you had a you know 10,000 tonne ship anchored off Hobson's Bay and you had to get your cargo to shore, the add-on costs were lighter reach where you had to get your, your cargo, put it into a small vessel and then lighter it up the Yarra River. So mm. your, your add-on costs were phenomenal. So they, <laughs> so so they needed to dredge, dredge. It's a huge. I mean, it's a massive. If, if you know the Yarra where it cuts through Fisherman's Bend, it's a massive piece of infrastructure, and it was all dug out with um, navvies and steam shovels. I remember seeing a photograph. I'm not sure where recently of when that was happening, and it was just like everyone's there in suits watching it on a Monday. Or so. It's like not much else was happening in Melbourne at the time. But you go and watch this. This um, canal be punched through and yeah. you know, giving you Coot yeah. Island. So, and, and as you allude to, a very important thing for, for early Melbourne, for, well, for the settlers of early Melbourne. The well, there was, there was talk about cutting a canal from um, straight to through to Port Melbourne itself because that was where the first railway was built to because it's only, you know, two miles or something that from Port Melbourne to uh, Melbourne. And there was originally talk about running canal through there, but they were worried about tides and silting because... Already the engineers all understood tides and silting and all these types of problems. So what period of time are we talking about? Because we've said the 1800s, which of course is so a 100-year period. But... <laughs> well, the uh, Coot Canal was opened in 1886. So, And then, as we alluded to before, Coot Island was formed and mm. that's where that was. But even um, back in the 1940s when my dad and uncle were small, they were kids, they could remember them just pumping acres and acres and acres of mud to fill up the lowlands around Footscray Road and Dynan Road and all that because it was just all lowland. And there was actually vessels, like a, there was a guy that lived in a, an old trading catch and refused to move. So his vessel was actually sort of <laughs> became part of dry land. Yeah, wow. So it was massive. I mean, this, so they just pumped it over the top of... Pu- pumped it all around, yeah. They pumped. put it all walls. So this... Reclaiming and restructuring and realigning has been going on for a very long time. We'll have to move on in just a sec. <laughs> Anything, any kind of other things you wanted to talk about with this, Rex? Like what What were sort of the major highlights, milestones throughout all this work? Um, the major milestones was just bringing Melbourne from a, a, a backward, especially during the gold rush, from a, just a rural town into a, one of the major cities, the biggest city in the southern hemisphere and that was p- happened partly through developing shipping infrastructure and the river 
and the ports. We should look into that, Dr Beach, about the the, the idea of some of those rocks still being there. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I do want to check that out. But, yeah, fascinating, Rex. And to think that that happened over such a you know, relatively short period, rapid period. It was. It was incredible, yeah. yeah. Great to have you back, Rex. Good to be here, bro. What are you going to cover next time? Ah, we're going to be talking about how do we go about making 160-year-old beer with uh, Dr Cammy Plum. <laughs> Fascinating. This is from stuff that's been pulled up out of the ocean. Yeah, yeah it was, it's a combined um, project with the New York Museum of Natural History and Dr. Kebby from, from Monash Uni. Fab- fabulous. All right, looking forward to it already. Okay, we'll see you then. Thanks, Rex. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You are listening to Radio Marinara here on 3 Triple R. It's with very great pleasure now that we welcome to Radio Marinara for the first time uh, one of our three new dive reporters, Cara Hull. Good morning, Cara. Good morning. So great to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you. Before we get into today's dive report, I thought I might um, ask you for for us, actually, as well as for um, our listeners, um, just tell us a bit about yourself. Oh, look, I wear many hats in life, but I guess the three that I wear mainly is my environmental hat, my science hat, marine ecology and coastal geomorphology. And probably my favourite is my scuba hood, my neoprene, which is what I'm about to pull on now. <laughs> Cara, it's Dr Beach here. It's really nice to have you join the um, the team, as it were, at Radio Marinara. Um, how Thank long have you been diving for? Uh, about 30 years, a bit longer. Wow, yeah. that's great. I bet you've got a number of hours racked up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so 30 years, that's amazing. And do you have um, a favourite dive place to go? Oh, look, I love the Morning Peninsula. It's great. You know, often when you're diving around other places, you're sort of waiting for weather to go out, etc. But here we protect it in the bay and we can go out, you know, if it's not good on one side, we can go out on the other side. Yeah, that's, that's exactly <laughs> like, right. Yeah. No matter which way the wind's blowing, there's always somewhere to go. Yeah. Um, yeah, have you seen a lot of changes over those 30 years? Oh, definitely, definitely. It's been fished out and a lot of sad things. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess some changes for the better as well. Um, I'm hoping. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, sure. I mean, we've got, you know, there's a lot more people scuba diving now and, you know, always great to see. So we've got a lot more people in the water and that sort of holds people accountable with fishing and things like that, which is wonderful. And you're Um, going out today? Yes, I'm at Rye at the moment. So just gearing up. It's looking good, although it said it wasn't going to rain. It's a little bit rainy here. <laughs> so right at the front or the back? At the, uh, the front. Nice. Yeah, on the base side. Yeah. yeah. Are you doing a pier dive today or are you heading out yeah. in a boat? Yeah, pier yeah. dive. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the great thing about Mornington Peninsula and um, I, I'm really keen to talk more about the, the western side as well and, and western ports sort of as the year goes on. But um uh, to profile sort of some of the great pier diving that you can do. And we talk a lot about Flinders Pier, of course, but but other diving that you can do around Western Port. But, yeah. Um, yeah. What's what's special about Rye Pier for you? Uh, well, there's Elsa's Reef, which is, you know, um, always a little bit special once you go out beyond the pier. Um, but, you know, look, at I took some tropical divers, if I say, some friends of mine this week who hadn't been in temperate waters. And, you know, the delight on their face when they saw the colours, the sponges, the ascidians, they just couldn't believe it. (laughs) So, you know, it's always great to to get that feedback and be like, you know, we have such an amazing thing on Melbourne's doorstep. 
We, we sure do. And I, I was reminded of that too, Cara, over summer. I would, uh, just went snorkeling off Portsea Pier. I was mentioning it last week and to my delight, uh, you know, lot, lots of really healthy weeds there, great, great diversity, but also the ascidians that you mentioned. And you, know, you can even see weedy sea dragon or two you know, right exactly, there. Yeah. It's just so beautiful and we are so lucky. Yes, very, very fortunate. <laughs> All right, should we get into it? Let's talk about the dive conditions today. Yeah, so it's coming through at about 21 knots through the head, but it's looking pretty calm. It's offshore here, obviously, at Rye, so it's southwest at the moment. Um, it's not too bad, and visibility looks good. I was in at Blair yesterday, so visibility wasn't too bad. So we've got, um, well, I'll give you the tide times. Yeah, we did <laughs> well, it at the start the of the show, but let's do so, them again. Yeah, the tide's low. Well, I'll give you Rye at 141 and high at 8.38, so... Um, but I would encourage everyone, if they're going out today, to have a look on Willie or Windy and check your tide times for your area. And this week coming up, it's changing to a southerly. That system's moving across us, and it's looking like a great week for diving. So get out there. <laughs> cool. Yeah, we were saying at the um, start of the show that the weather's going to warm up quite a lot and by the end of the week be in the early to mid-30s. So yes. that'll, that'll shift to northerlies, I would assume, but still, yeah, it is. still be able to get some good diving in. I guess if it chops up too much at the end of the week, sort of on that on that bay side, you can always jump over to Flinders where you'll be a bit exactly. more protected. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's always a beauty. Yes. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Well, lovely to meet you, Cara. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining our team and great dive report. Well done. Excellent. <laughs> thank you. Look forward to joining you again. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Likewise. Okay. All right, have a great day. <laughs> you too. Thanks. Bye. Cara Hull. It'd be nice to get her in the studio one time too so that we can truly meet her in person. Yeah, we'll make sure that happens. I said absolutely at Radiothon, if not before. This is the hard thing about dive reporting and this is sort of why we've got to this point of of recruiting some new dive reporters in because, of course, Sunday morning they're all out in the water. Yep, that's right. Awesome. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. It's an absolute joy to welcome to 2023 our very own, your ours, uh, coastal paleontologist, <laughs> Ben Francis-Shelley. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. Thank you for having me again. I'm excited. It's always a pleasure to have you with us. Um, and, uh, yeah, great to welcome you back to 2023. Let's launch straight into it because I've already done the giant promo of this whole thing. This 5 million-year fossil of a giant marsupial, five, it's, this, everything about this story is big, 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 big. That, that's everything in the past usually is really, really big, except for like a few tiny little animals. But other than that, especially when it comes down to the fossil deposits in Bayside, everything was just gigantic. And the marsupial that we found uh, in early January, it was the 1st of January, actually. I went down, I didn't go out drinking on uh, New Year's Eve at all. I decided I would be kind of stationed and uh, have kind of an idea of what was going on around me. And, yeah, this thing was just lying on the bottom of the seafloor, a portion of upper jaw of this giant marsupial that was 500 kilograms in weight. My goodness, Ben, what, what, a, what a great New Year's Day find for you. Where were you? So I was uh, at the second site, the fossil site in Bayside, called Black Rock. And I can actually say it's Black Rock now because there's a paper that's out about it, which is awesome. So I don't have to keep it a secret like we've been keeping a secret for the last five years whilst we try to collect as many fossils as we possibly could. Now, the next question, I reckon there'll be a few people wondering about this. Is this area protected? So what is to stop fossil hunters from going down there and trying to get their own little bit for their, for their, you know, their, their, their shelves? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a great question. It just borders onto the Marine Ricketts Point Sanctuary itself. So it's just on the other side of that. 
And legally, if you do find any fossils, uh, as long as they're loose at the bottom of the seafloor and you don't have to dig them out, you are allowed to keep them. But the onus on you is that if you do find something that you suspect is of scientific interest, you can contact me or the museum or somebody like that, because these individual bits of bones can change the way in which we view the evolution of life on our continent. Yeah, amazing. There's so much in this, isn't there? There sure is. And I was just down there yesterday. We talked about there's a nice dog beach there just near Ricketts Point, the city there side, is, yeah. the bottom of McGregor Avenue. And this sounds like exactly where you're talking about down there. Um, but yeah, so you were, it, was it? You were snorkeling and you saw it on the sea floor, so at a couple of meters depth. Or oh, yeah, so I've got a really weird. No, yeah, so it was in a couple of meters of water. I've got a really weird method for collecting fossils in Bayside. Usually, I'm diving and I. Fr- Dives. All my breath, I've got these heavy weights around my belts that make me sink straight to the bottom and I just sink. And then I kind of moonwalk like a moon man looking for fossils on the bottom of the seafloor, lifting up bits of rock. And they're really hard to find. Most people will go down there thinking, I'm going to find a megalodon tooth. And I can tell you, <laughs> that's just not going to happen unless you know exactly what it is you're looking for and you have a good understanding of the sediments and the strata as well. So you must have had this crazy eureka moment when you saw it. That must have been like the fireworks, the New Year's fireworks going off just for you. It, it was, yeah. So it was at the top of the, the water column itself and I saw this thing and this almost bioluminescent-looking crowns of teeth sticking out of the surface and I was like, oh, my God, I know exactly what that is. As soon mm-hmm. as I hit my breath and I went down, I just swam down as quickly as I could, felt the pressure from my ears, equalised and just picked it up and it was just loose. So, yeah, as soon as I picked it up in my hand, I was... Uh, Squealing for joy! Wow, you could see it from the surface, and you were snorkeling, and you and you could, you could see the teeth, and wow! So it was. <laughs> this is the amazing thing about so Bayside is that ninety nine percent of the fossils that we find there are loose at the bottom of the sea floor. So you can just literally reach out, pick them up. Had a colleague and friend Connor Brecken this week. He went down to Bo Morris, and he found two gigantic lower teeth from the ancestors. The great white shark, and they're almost the same size as his hands. They're just huge. But he found them as he finds all of his teeth as well. And he's a fantastic collaborator for the state uh, collection as well. So let's talk about the animal itself. So giant marsupial, I'm going to have a crack at its name here, Zygomaturus <laughs> gilli. Correct, Zygomaturus gilli, a 500-kilo marsupial. You got it pretty good, yeah, I got, it, I got it so wrong and last time, so I'm taking this as a win. <laughs> most, most look, you know, if you can call Diplodocus Diplodocus, you know, it's ridiculous what we call these things half the time, the things we uh, we give for them. Um, but, yeah, Zygomaturus superficially would have looked like a wombat with a face pushed in like a pug but weighed the same as a pygmy hippopotamus wow. at about 500 kilograms in weight. And do you know, so you discovered this jaw, I think a lower jaw you mentioned, is there anything else, any other fossils that you have of this or have you described the animal from the lower jaw? So it was first described back in the 60s, I believe, of a portion of lower jaw and most of these specimens of Zygomaturus gilli that have been found have only really been jaw sections. But uh, with the help of citizen scientists, we just continue to make these amazing discoveries again and again. Uh, there was another set of fragment found by uh, Barb Vey, uh, back in June last year, where she found an upper portion of jaw as well in Beaumaris. So these things are constantly being found. They're very rare, but they are there. So we can imagine, if we think back 10, 15 million years, there were these animals roaming the shores of what is now Port Phillip. Well, as little as 40,000 years ago, they were thought to still be here. And the largest diprotodon opatum was probably here when the first peoples were here as well. So, And that thing weighed 2.8 metric tons. It was the proper size of a hippo. And its remains have been found all over Melbourne as well. Good, good eating, I'd imagine. 
<laughs> Good jerky. Yeah. I don't yeah. know if I'd want to take on something quite that big. That's extraordinary. And, of course, it's not just one of these animals. We're talking about presumably hard to extrapolate from this, but there'd be some sort of social um, community in terms of their population of, you know, how yeah, they actually existed. it's a fair existed. assumption. So back in the 70s in Bacchus Marsh, actually, there was a so-called herd of 13 individuals that were dug out of a pit. So, And it was thought to be a kind of matriarchal herd in a similar kind of way that elephants roam today. So, But it's anyone's guess. It's very hard to extrapolate that from bones alone. How do you, how do you determine whether or not they were a herd or it was just 13 individuals who just fortuitously died all at exactly the same time? Yeah. Hey, Ben, you're a card-carrying paleontologist. I was talking before about a paper that excited me in the, in the press this week, uh, the science paper, which came out of China, described the the discovery to of um after that mass extinction event between the Permian and the Triassic, they've now discovered within a million years after that this amazing eruption of life that came back in the oceans. Were you as excited about that as, as the rest of the world, being a paleontologist? I'm always excited to hear how life can bounce back after extinction events as well. There was also another fantastic paper that came out about a gorilla-sized penguin that was discovered in New Zealand <laughs> and came about like 15 million years after the extinction of the dinosaurs. So... You know, these animals have the capacity to just come back in incredible ways. You know, it, it really is incredible. Yeah. So what are the plans for this fossil now? Uh, so this fossil is going to be lodged within the state collection where every single scientifically important fossil that I find will always go and with the citizen scientists that I work with as well and we'll continue to work on it and try to understand what they were doing five million years ago. Yeah, can we put I, – I totally uh, would like to just put that call out again. If you want to go out there and hunt for fossils, fantastic, and find your fossil and take your selfie and have, the, have your record of it with it and then send it to the museum where it belongs and, and continue to build this incredible fossil fossil record that that you are really leading the way with Ben in terms of you know establishing this real picture of what life used to be like because our fossil record here is just so rich and it's just sitting there and, and putting it all together is just magic so speaking of which uh, I believe you've had a, a particularly exciting find from a trip down the surf coast this week I did, as a matter of fact, yes. And also, just to preface what you just said before as well, you're not allowed to dig in any areas around Melbourne in order to look for the fossils. But like I mentioned before, the lucky thing about Bayside is that they're loose. So yeah. that really works for all of us. But, yep, went down to the surf coast, and I'm not going to give you the exact locality, but there, sitting in the rock, was a 23-million-year-old jaw of a type of whale called a mammalodontid. Oh. Tell us about <laughs> mammalodontids while you're here. Well, they were a really wacky phase of baleen whale evolution. So when we think of baleen whales today, we think of the biggest animals that have ever lived, humpbacks, blues, fin whales. They've substituted their teeth. They don't have any functional teeth in the lower or upper jaw anymore. Instead, they have a large keratinous mustache that fills the upper jaw and they use it to sieve. Mm. Things like krill, small microorganisms. But these baleen whales 23 million years ago had teeth and they were sharp, jagged teeth for splicing into their prey and just eating it from afar. And they were incredible predators that completely went extinct some 20 million years ago. 
Amazing. Yeah, so much fun. I can imagine, the, well, I can see the excitement on your face. I can see it here. It was Skyping you, and I'm sure the listeners could hear it in your voice, Ben. But, um, yeah, what an exciting job you have. And it's, um, yeah, wonderful that you're able to bring it to, to all of us here on a Sunday morning. Hey, next time you're back with us, Ben, can we talk about this um, find? I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, and so and next time you're on, um, hopefully the, this new find, will uh, you'll have some more sort of formalities around it and be able to talk about it a bit more. I wanted- Absolutely. I've actually put it up on my socials if uh, anyone's really keen to get an idea of what it looks like whilst it's in the grounds. So if you want to see it, you can go over to my Instagram, a fool's experiment, a underscore fool's underscore experiment, because I'm a fool and all this is an experiment. <laughs> it's actually a quote by Darwin and I just loved it when he said it. Yeah, brilliant. And we can talk more about too what happened, like why why did whales lose their teeth? And I'm sort of thinking about Port Jackson sharks and those, you know, those sh- uh, yeah, sharks. Yeah, little jelly bean teeth. Yeah, that they don't have their teeth. What, what's the process, evolutionary process behind that? But let's save that for next time. Absolutely. I'd lo- oh, my God. The evolution of alien whales is one of the most fascinating topics you could possibly talk about. If we have an hour, we can probably get through it. <laughs> we'll make one. Yeah, let's make one. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure. Yeah. We'll catch you soon. Ben Fran. Ben Francis Shelley there. Got to love him, the enthusiasm coming, beaming to us on a Sunday morning directly from the museum. It's brilliant. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We are now going to cross down to Hobart to catch up with our very own cabin boy, Brett Ditchfield. I think we only mentioned your name maybe twice in the entire year, cabin boy. But uh, great to have you with us. Uh, good morning, Beaky. Good morning, Bron. Uh, yeah, down here in Condock in, uh, in Hobart. And you are down there for the Wooden Boat Festival. I think we kind of profile the Wooden Boat Festival at the beginning of every year here on Radio Marinara. Um, I think the last one was maybe in Geelong. Is that right? There was this the one down in Hobart's every second year, and okay. then the infill is Geelong. So, uh, but we missed the uh, last um, festival because of COVID. So, of course, this is four years since. So it's bigger and better. Oh wow! So wooden boat festival. Um, let's talk about that to start with, and then I want to talk about your trip down there because, as I mentioned at the start of the program, you are the real deal, cabin boy. You have sailed <laughs> down to Hobart for the wooden boat festival in your very own wooden boat. But um, tell us about the festival. And, and, and I'm very env- envious, by the way, cabin boys. I'm sure many of our listeners are to know that you've been able to sail down there to do this. You might have Ooh, a well, wait. You wait might- till you hear the story about sailing down before you get too envious. <laughs> <laughs> But, hey, the Wooden Boat Festival, this is the big, second biggest wooden boat festival in the world. So um, kudos to our Hobart for putting this on. It's, it takes over the whole waterfront, Sullivan's Cove and Constitution Dock. And people have come from everywhere. There's uh, people from overseas. There's uh, quite a few Queensland accents, too, that I've been detecting. And uh, the boats have also sailed from Adelaide, Sydney, Melbourne. So um, it, it is amazing. And the whole idea of the uh, festival is just to keep wooden boats alive and the uh, all the culture and the um, kind of just the wood woodworking around it to the craft. So it, it does it really well down here in Hobart. Hey, you're not going to believe who's down there. We've just had a text from our very own Cliff Davis, uh-huh. our, our former and potentially future, but our former... Antarctica correspondent. So um, Cliff sent a message, says, hi from Hobart, the Wooden Boat Festival rocks, and he's put a bunch of photos in there. So he's down there with you, Captain Boy. Oh, fantastic. Well, tell it to 
put out for my boat, Magic Whisk. We're in Condock, squeezed between two other boats, but I do have a uh, triple R sticker on the transom, so you should be able to spot me fairly easy that way. <laughs> you got a triple R sticker on your boat. I love it. <laughs> so, kind of give us a, give us a bit of a, a visual of um, of the well, the boats themselves, but how they've got down there. Well, obviously they've they've all sailed there, but um, have they come from lots of different parts of um, Australia? Have you got any that have sort of come from beyond Australia? Yeah, yeah, quite a few internationals. Uh, quite, uh, one or two from New Zealand. Um, there's 11 tall ships down here too, which is pretty impressive when along the waterfront. It, it, like, it takes you, well, not that I was there, ever there, but it takes you back to the olden days when, uh, you know, when the only way to get to Hobart was from sail. So it's pretty impressive indeed with all those tall ships. Amazing. Now let's talk about your trip down there because uh, I understand it was pretty epic. Well, every boat has a, and that's the other beauty of being down here, You just to tell the tales of coming down here. So normally I come down with my son, but he's kind of grown up and he's he's got work commitments. So uh, a friend, Robin, put her hand up. And uh, I've known Robin for years and years, good friend. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I gave her the details of what to expect, but it wasn't quite that. So um, we left. Port Phillip heads with another three, four boats, which was pretty phenomenal in itself, and um, turned uh, turned left to head down to uh, Wilson's Prom, and it wasn't long before uh, Paul Robin kind of succumbed to a bit of seasickness. So uh, the poor thing, all the way down, she wasn't good at all, and uh, so bad that when we finally got to uh, Tassie, I had to let her off at Binalong Bay because she was that sick. Oh, poor thing. My yeah. heart my heart goes out to her, being uh, the, the victim of seasickness on a pretty epic scale a long time ago, but, yeah, I know how bad that can be. So how did you go as an old sea dog? Was it, like, was it sort of really – was it surprisingly bad? Uh, well, yeah, it, quite a few boats had a bit of trouble. We had a good sail, like we've had to sail like 48 hours through the night to get down here just because it's like a game of chess. You've got to plan two or three um, moves ahead because you don't want to be somewhere if the wind, cha- you know, like if a storm comes through and you can't anchor anywhere. So it's quite strategic and you've always got to change your plans at, the, at a minute's, minute's notice, which doesn't help when you're seasick also. God, I can imagine. Oh. Yeah. So, so, so will you be sailing back again? Yeah, my son flies in today. And we'll, once the festival finishes uh, tomorrow, we all get kicked out of Condock. So all the boats kind of uh, head down and anchor somewhere and then plan their uh, trip home. So it took us seven days to get down here and it'll probably take as much the same to get back down, down the east coast of Tassie. So Wooden Boat Festival, you're sharing tips, not, well, but stories not only about the, the passage across to get down there, um, but I'd imagine like tips on how to restore your boats, all sorts of things. What, what do you talk about down there at the festival? That there's a lot of uh, beer being drunk, but there's a lot of information <laughs> being a lot of information being passed back and forth because you know shipwright is it's a it's a pretty kind of interesting uh, occupation and um, kind of down here in Tassie there's a lot of shipbuilding uh, history so there's a lot of people around everyone gives advice um, the other boat I came down I came down with Peter on Irene had a few problems and an old shipwright jumped on board his boat and said, oh, you just need to do this and you need to do that. So everyone's helpful with tips and uh, just helping out too. 
I've got the program in front of me, Cabin Boy. There's so much going on. Like, do you find that you're a bit spoiled for choice? And is it kind of like, I don't know if you've ever been to a conference. I'm looking at this like a conference, Dr. Beach. You know how when you, you have your conference program in front of you and you've got your highlighter out and you're having to sprint from one one theatre to another to catch the talks you want to go to? Or like a festival. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, that's right. Like yeah. film festivals, comedy festivals, they've all kind of got that same feel. Is that what it's been like for you, Cabin Boy? Kind of, but I, I didn't get to go to any of the um, or the seminars or that. They got booked out pretty quickly, so uh, it was hard to get in. But it is like a, you know, like a music festival, anything. You just wander around and you just bump into people you know and you suddenly, you know, sometimes you don't even see the music because you're chatting away and, and that. So it's kind of like that too. And it's a little bit of boat hopping too, you know. You, you walk past, jump on, and before you know, you've got a beer in your hand and you're listening to other stories. So it's, it's kind of hard to describe how you feel in four days, but they just go in a flash. Yeah, that's it. I'm looking at the program for today at Constitution Dock. You've got my first boat launch. There's a mast safety demo, dragon boat demo. That must be fascinating to see um, some the dragon boats in action. Um, and uh, something at, oh, running from 10 till 4 called parbuckling. Do you know what that is? Yeah, that's just at the well, just down from where we're parked here. Um, they used to row well, float whiskey barrels or water barrels out to the boats from the shore, and to get them on to the ship, they had to parbuckle them on, which is a just a technique of lashing the barrels to pull them onto the ship. So, because of course the ships are parked off the uh, off the beach, that's the only way they could get out, float them out. And there's a bunch of films on as well. I've got Peacock Theatre Films, Gary Kerr Productions, Trading Out of Hobart, The Last Cape Horners, Two Men in a Punt. <laughs> they look fantastic. So you've got some films that are screening as well. Yeah, and as I said, there's something for everyone. I mean, it's like a living museum too down here, or some of the boats are polished within an inch of their lives. Absolutely magnificent beasts. And then there's just um, over in um, the King's um, Pier, there's uh, just some working boats, you know, the old cray boats that have, people have converted into cruising boats. And, again, they'll go around the world and they're absolutely magnificent and uh, pieces. And from what I'm reading um, on the program, there are 11 tall ships down there as well. That's right, from Adelaide. Sydney's got quite a big uh, set of tall ships up there with their uh, historical society. But um, you can uh, actually jump on a tall ship and go for a cruise up the Derwent. I, I think they throw up a few sails to give you a thrill and just, uh, yeah, to be part of it. That, that sounds, all sounds fantastic. I would imagine the, um, the good burgers of Hobart are out enjoying this as well. It's not just the people who are the boaties who have you know, sailed down there or from other places around Tasmania. It's um all the gang out there, the locals. Oh, well and truly. I mean, they give you a uh, boat owner's pass to get you in because sometimes the piers are that full with people that they stop people coming on, you know, because there's, there's that many people around. So I, I reckon it, it has to be the biggest festival in Hobart. Uh, Kevin Boy, we're at the end of the program, but I did get a text message from Cliff saying he's happy to help you sail down next time he doesn't get seasick, and I reckon Dr Beach is up for uh, that no, as well. No, I was about to say, uh, get in line, Cliff. <laughs> <laughs> we maybe, gotta... maybe you can both go down. <laughs> we're going to get out of here for uh, Fiona and for Jessamy who are presenting this, um, this Chicken Life. Thanks, Kevin Boy. No worries. We'll catch I'll you catch back you in soon. the studio next time. Safe travels. Bye. Bye. Thank See you. Ya. Thanks, Cabin Boy. Ben Francis Shelley. Cara Hull for her first dive report to Rex. Thank you, Dr. Beach. Thank you, Dr. Burton. And thank you also um, to Rachel for panelling for us. Yep. And thanks to David, who will have this show up as a podcast. On our show next week, we've got you back in again, Dr. Beach, three in a row. 
Got to love it. And uh, Dr. Gary Poor is going to be in talking about his new book, which is absolutely spectacular, Taxonomy of Crustacean Life. Um, and Jeff Maynard as well. So big show already planned for next week. Yeah, stay tuned for this Chicken Life and uh, have a wonderful Sunday. Bye-bye. Catch you next week. Bye for now. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.